And thank you, Alexanders. That was beautiful. Uh, much appreciated. I'm going to start with a, uh, a plug. Uh, I know we've already been given this plug, uh, but what you may not know is uh, in the back of uh, the narthex, actually throughout the narthex, there's like 500 of these things. Uh, and you're supposed to take them with you, not just one, uh, but multiples. Uh, and so here's my plan. Uh, so I should say two things. One, uh, we have about 1,500 of them being uh, mailed out to our, our neighboring community, right? And so they will be receiving those this week. Uh, and our goal and our hope is to get uh, folks coming up our hill uh, and joining us for this event that is on the 27th. Um, the other thing is that then for those homes that don't get it, and there will be plenty, uh, and maybe some of these will be near your house, uh, I, what my practice is, I, I don't know what your morning routine looks like. If you, if you go on a walk through your neighborhood though, it's a very easy thing to do. I get up early and I, I go on a walk and I will take uh, you know, a stack of these. And you're not allowed to open a mailbox, so don't do that. Uh, uh, you feds out there, um, that's, not my, that's not what I'm saying. That's illegal, apparently. But I do think you're allowed to put it next to the mailbox. And, uh, and if you want to do that, uh, that is certainly something uh, that I think will get you a crown in heaven. I don't know. That's what they say. But... <laughs> uh, Whatever the case, family, friends, neighbors, be sure to pick up some and get them to them. <clears throat> uh, we're continuing on this week uh, with this series on, on sanctuary. I'll tell you what, the, the deeper I dig into this, the more I love it, uh, the more richness there is. And this week uh, is, uh, is all about holiness. Uh, the title is Holiness Unto the Lord which um, for me has, uh, well, it has a deeper meaning that it may not have for you. Uh, this was a, um, f first of all, it's a quote from Scripture. Uh, it's a good King James quote, but it's, it's a quote from Scripture, uh, which is from uh, the book of Exodus, where we are. Uh, it's in uh, chapter 28 uh, and verses 36 to 37. And it's, it's part of the description of everything that's happening uh, with regard to the tabernacle and the things that are in the tabernacle and the way the priest should be dressed. And so there's a, a passage that starts in verse 36 that says, You shall make a plate of pure gold, and you should engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. That's what you should engrave on it, right? Holy to the Lord. And then you should fasten it onto the turban uh, by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban of the high priest Aaron. So the high priest is uh, walking around with a turban on, and on it says, holy to the Lord, or holiness unto the Lord, right? And uh, this is not the only place in Scripture this passage shows up. Uh, we're going to talk about another one uh, a little bit later in the sermon but it's also not the only place in my life where this has shown up. The other place in my life where this phrase has shown up uh, was for uh, three years uh, of my college experience was at Asbury College, now Asbury University. And I had to go to chapel three days a week, and um, every chapel 
it's impossible to escape because in huge lettering above the chapel stage sits this phrase, holiness unto the Lord, right? And so I feel like I got uh, half a degree in holiness, uh, though I will confess to you, I, I think some of that, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about this uh, as we go on here, was a misunderstanding of what holiness uh, truly is and what's really going on here. But I think it fits quite naturally and rightly with a discussion of sanctuary, if for no other reason than this. The word holy in Hebrew is kodesh, okay? Q-D-S for short. The word sanctuary is mikdash, which sounds very different, but it's not. It has simply that M right on the front, M-Q-D-S, right? So, so a sanctuary is, by its definition, a holy place, right? And it turns out that holiness and the word holy becomes incredibly important uh, for uh, the ancient uh, Israelites. And you find it everywhere, right? Their people are supposed to be holy people, they are supposed to uh, worship at a holy place. And inside the holy place is the holy of holies. And, and the, the, um, uh, the people who are in there are wearing uh, holy garments. And the, uh, the, the, um, the utensils that are inside of this holy place are also holy. As we read for today, the altar uh, itself that sits in front of the sanctuary, well, it makes everything that touches it holy. And then, just as a kicker, well, the very first thing in all of Scripture that is said to be holy, you know what this is? It's the seventh day. God creates, and He, he rests on the seventh day, and He says that the seventh day is holy. And so, if, if you will, uh, this idea of all space being a sanctuary, uh, time being a sanctuary, and people being sanctuary fits quite nicely with this topic of holiness because we're supposed to be a holy people creating holy spaces, and even our time, the Sabbath and beyond, is said to be holy. So that's what we're talking about today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, our Father in heaven, we ask that this morning um, you teach us what it means to be a holy people, what it would mean to be a holy church, and what it would mean for our households to be holy, what it would mean for us to to live in an unholy world in such a fashion uh, that your holiness shines through all things. God, we ask that you open our hearts this morning, that it not just be a mental exercise, but it, it be something that changes us. That when we walk out of here, Lord, that our desire be that we be a holy people. And that our desires are more than a desire, but that is put in action, that you give us the strength and the courage and, and the power to become sanctified, to become holy. God, this morning, more than anything, we need your presence. We need your holy presence in this place. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. As we get started here, um, I want to talk about a few properties of holiness. And by doing so, my hope is to maybe clarify some of what's going on with this word uh, that I think may be misunderstood, or maybe uh, as with many words uh, in uh, our uh, Christianity, just simply need a little more to them. It needs to be filled out. And so uh, over time, certain words get used so often that they've become uh, weakened and, and lessened and misunderstood. And my goal today is to fill out what it means uh, to be holy. The first thing I would say about holiness is this, and it's probably the most important thing, that this is a quality of God. It is not a quality of humanity. It is not a quality of the world itself or the creation. That holiness is a quality and characteristic only of God. Leviticus 19.2, I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. God now imparts that holiness upon other things, whether it be the tabernacle, whether it be us, whether it be the seventh day, whatever it be, right? And he can call things holy, and he can make things holy, but holiness as a characteristic starts with God alone. The second thing I'd say is that uh, is something uh, that Isabel actually mentioned, and that is uh, typically when we use the word uh, holiness, we, uh, we also then uh, connect it to being set apart, right, to be, to be set apart. So there's a separateness here. And one way to think of this is that, uh, so if holiness is a characteristic of God, we can think of God as transcendent, right? God is, is beyond. He's uh, bigger and, and grander than anything we can think or imagine or begin to understand. And this should be simple enough, but we often forget it, because we have finite minds, we are finite beings, and we are dealing with an infinite being that is God. And so in this way, God transcends, he's set apart from everything else that exists. And I mean literally everything else, because he created all the other things that are in existence. And thereby, he is different from all of those other things that are in existence, even you and me. And so in this way, God is indeed set apart. He is transcendent, and to talk about holiness is is really in some ways to talk about God. And to talk about God is to pierce this veil that exists between our human limitation and the transcendent creator of all things. It's to pierce the veil that exists between limited humanity and infinite divinity. The third thing is this, and this is the one we often think of with holiness, or at least I do, has to do with ethics, right, or morality. Doing the right things, not doing the wrong things. To be a holy people is to, to not sin, right? And indeed, this is part of what it means uh, to be holy and what holiness is. God is indeed righteous, 
and this is indeed connected to holiness. There is more, and it's the more that I want to keep adding, right? A holy object cannot be righteous, can it? And yet we know that God says that certain objects were made holy, and the, the tabernacle is a holy place, or the, uh, the, the Sabbath is a holy day. Well, it's not their righteousness or, or that, that make them holy. So there has to be something more to it. But the way we behave in this life certainly reflects holiness. And so if we're going about sinning, then we are indeed lacking in holiness. To be a holy person is somebody who, uh, in part of this definition, is somebody who has given oneself over to God completely and thereby uh, is not uh, living a life of sin. But this isn't the end of the definition of holiness. The fourth thing I would say about it is this, and it is also connected to something Isabel said, which is is that purity is part of this. And, and for many of us, these, we're now really uh, getting into some gray territory because uh, we just said that sin is, well, this is what holiness is, but now purity, purity can be a very different thing, at least the way it's talked about in the Old Testament. And here's what I mean. You see, uh, the Israelites had to purify themselves of their sinful actions, yes. But they also, if you're unaware of your book of Leviticus, have to purify themselves from these other things that just simply happen in ordinary life. Things like skin diseases and excessive bleeding and a menstrual cycle and eating the wrong animals and touching a dead body, mold and mildew gathering on your clothing— None of these are sin, right? But in order for Israel to gather at the tabernacle, the holy place, they had to purify themselves ahead of time if any of these things had happened in the recent past. Does this make sense? Now, I want to say something very clearly here. All of those things that I just mentioned, the skin diseases, etc., that is what we call part of the, uh, well, the first covenant. And we, uh, under the covenant with Christ, we're no longer bound by these purity laws in the same way. So I don't want you to leave this place thinking that you have to somehow keep these purity laws intact as well. With the new covenant, that is in Jesus' blood, we are no longer bound to the former covenant and its ritual demands. Christ has washed and cleansed us so that we may approach God with confidence. And yet, there is a very important theological underpinning under all of this, which is why I bring it up at all, and it's this that all of these purity laws are connected in one single strand, in one way, and it has to do with death. 
It's a matter of life and death. And just as sin makes us unclean, so also, certainly the way the Old Testament describes it, proximity to death makes us unclean as well. And the most obvious example is indeed that touching of the dead body. The high priest was not even allowed to bury his own friends and family except for his own spouse because the high priest was not allowed to touch or be near a dead body. And so death, well, there's something unnatural about it. And I think you and I know this a little too well, maybe. If you've had somebody in your life die, you know that something feels wrong about that. A a world in which death exists is not quite right. Which is why in the Garden of Eden, we have a tree of life, right? And death is not part of the world at this point. And why, when we get to the New Jerusalem, at the end of it all, we again have a tree of life, and death is not part of that. But we, we sit in this middle place where death still exists and where sin still exists. The fifth and final thing I'd say about holiness is one you might not expect. I think it is closely connected to other attributes of God, such as glory and majesty. And that is, there is something beautiful about God's holiness. Psalm 96, 9 says it this way, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. There's something really interesting going on there. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. There is such a thing as a terrible beauty, as a beauty that is is so beautiful that it actually causes one to tremble. And I do think this is what we have in God. There is something so utterly beyond and good and beautiful about God that to approach God in an inappropriate way should cause us to tremble, should cause us to think twice about what we're doing. To tie all of these five points together, I would say this. To speak of holiness is to speak of the very essence and character of God that is beyond our human understanding. God acts according to his holiness. And so when we begin to speak of holiness, we are trying to rise above our human limitations, and we are sticking our head in the heavens, and we are having a look around. We are, again, piercing that veil that stands between divinity and humanity. And in doing so, we are trying to glimpse our own origins, our destiny, and our very purpose of being. It is a glimpse into what was in Eden before the fall, 
and what will be in the new Jerusalem when all is redeemed once again. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Without holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. Heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness is written on everything in heaven, he says. This is good news, by the way. This is good news. It's not a stuffy version of holiness. It's a holiness that is filled with goodness and with beauty and with truth and with joy and with love. These are the things of holiness. All of the wonderful and good characteristics of our Lord. This is what it means to be holy and to live into this holiness. The Edenic ideal that I've talked about some, what things were like in Eden, what contained no sin and no death, right? No sin and no death, which is part of the problem that unholiness has created that sin is there and death is there too. But God, the Holy One, does not sin and he does not die. He is eternally spotless. And to be a holy people, us, we must strive for the opposite of sin and death. We strive for purity, purity of action, purity of heart, and we strive to be a life-giving people. I do think it's the sinlessness part of all of this that gets us caught up a little bit, though. It certainly is for me. It can be suffocating, right, to think of this ideal of sinlessness. The Pharisees, or at least their friends, probably knew this a little too well. Uh, my experience at Asbury College taught me this, maybe to a lesser degree than the Pharisees' uh, friends were taught it, but there is a certain Pharisaical uh, atmosphere that can happen when one is striving for uh, a holiness that is connected only to sinlessness. And so, when I went to that chapel three times a week, and I, and I would read the words, holiness unto the Lord, all the time, and it got me thinking about uh, what it means to live a life of, of holiness, and I was co continually wrapped up in the idea of what it would mean to live a, a sinless life, you begin to start making really weird rules. And I think the Christian tradition is, uh, is well, it, it falls into this from time to time. And we Baptists, we definitely do this, right? And, and so, uh, even though the whole dancing thing is nowhere in Scripture, uh, I'm going there. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, never, you just don't want to take the chance because the dance could lead to something else, right? Uh, and so, therefore, let's just not dance either. Or uh, some of you grew up in a tradition where, uh, so if gambling is a sin, we're just going to not touch cards 
altogether. Did anyone, did anyone grow up in this? Or maybe you're still there, I don't know. Uh, maybe I shouldn't raise hands. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you just don't touch cards, and why? Because cards are sinful? No, but because they could lead down there, and, and so we don't want to do that, right? And so when we strive for holiness in what I'll say are the wrong ways, we create a set of rules that make it seem like, yes, we've now achieved holiness because I'm able to check the boxes uh, of these rules that I've created. But one can keep all of these rules and still miss the heart of holiness entirely, in fact. I might even argue that with enough time, you will almost certainly miss the heart of holiness if you're just simply trying to keep a bunch of rules. That is not what holiness is. Nancy Lee DeMoss says it this way, and I really liked this quote this week. True holiness isn't cold and deadening. It is warm and inviting. It is irresistible, and those who think otherwise have never seen it, but only its caricatures. I love that. It isn't cold. It's not deadening. It is warm. It is inviting. It's irresistible. And if you've not experienced that kind of holiness, then you've probably only experienced caricatures of it. So what would it mean to be, uh, uh, to, to embody and to uh, live into a kind of holiness that is warm and inviting? Well, I, I think it would look like this. I, th- I think it would look like being a loving people. I think it would look like being uh, a, uh, a people who care about uh, goodness and those who are around us and thinking of the other first, and taking care of those uh, who are in need, and reaching out and going the extra mile. You know all the things that Jesus talks about uh, throughout the Gospels, right? It would mean being a a life-giving people, because if holiness is connected somehow to that tree of life that God implants in the, uh, in the creation, and that uh, God, the giver of life, is infusing into this world, then what would it mean for us to be uh, people who advocate for life? It looks like a number of things. It might look like a social position advocating for life. It probably also looks like advocating for life for those people who are down and out. It might be on their last leg. And it's a a, a position where we care about the lives of all people, maybe especially those people who are in places where they cannot care for their own selves. I think all of these things are wrapped up in a proper understanding of holiness. Love and goodness and beauty and, most of all, life. To be a holy people, therefore, is not just to keep the rules, but it's to be overflowing with the very attitudes of God. Or as Paul puts it, 
with the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is nothing less than the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwelling in us, producing those fruit, right? That's what the fruit of the Spirit means. And so if indeed we are holy people with a holy God dwelling within us, producing a certain kind of fruit, well, then we will be people of love and peace and patience and kindness. In fact, Frederick Buechner says it maybe a little too simply, but he says this, if you want to be holy, be kind. <laughs> it's a little too simple, but it puts a fine point on it, right? If you want to be holy, well, be kind. That's at least a good place to start. So what does it mean for South Run Baptist Church to be a, a holy sanctuary? As we've discussed, to be a sanctuary is both to be a people, it's to be a place, and it's to create a certain kind of time, right? And, and what would it mean for us to be a, a holy people in a holy place in a holy time? I think the first thing we must recognize is that this is not our work to do. It is God's work to do. It is God that makes things holy, that makes people holy. But we, we are a vehicle. We are a vehicle for God's holiness. And just like on Aaron's head sat that uh, phrase, holiness unto the Lord, well, now it sits on your head and my head and the, and the, uh, the head of the church, and, uh, and this is what we're creating, a people who exude this kind of holiness. It means people, being people of love and goodness and beauty and life. And I think it means this, too. From our Old Testament passage today, this one really caught me. And I think there's a lot to this. This, again, is, is uh, Moses describing what the tabernacle should be and what it should look like and, and, and the parts to it. And, and you can get caught up in all the little details. But there's this one phrase in there, and it has to do with this altar. And he says this, that the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall become holy. What if we were to not only be holy people in this world, but what if we were to be an altar in the world that brought God's holiness to it? What if people found the altar itself within our church, and within the way we live our lives, that they might become holy? What if we brought God to the world? The last thing I'll say is this. At the end of Zechariah, very last thing that happens, Zechariah uh, has, it's a, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the book of Zechariah, if you know it, and uh, it gets to the end, and he too has a vision of what the New Jerusalem should be like. There's a, there's a few of these uh, in our Old Testament, and the New Testament for that matter, 
Uh, but you get to the end of Zechariah, and uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 20 to 21, you find this passage. And he says this. It's the other place that this phrase shows up, by the way. He says, In that day shall there be upon the bells of the, ho- of the horses, on the bells of the horses, holiness unto the Lord. That's what's inscribed on the bells of the horses. And the pots in the Lord's house, well, they should be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And what is Zechariah saying? He's saying that the holiness that exists there at that tabernacle space, he even knows this. He knows that's not enough. That's not the goal. That's not where we're all headed toward. The goal is that everything be made holy, right? Everything, down to the bells of the horses and the pots that we eat our food from, down to the smallest little thing, that it all be made holy, that it be made into the image of God, and that God's holiness be infused in all people, in all places, in all time. And this is really good news. Because whether you like it or not, this is what's coming. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, our Creator, Almighty God, the Holy One, Lord, as we come to you now, we do confess that indeed you are holy and we are not. By your very nature, you are holy and you desire to make us holy too. Lord, it is why you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, that you might purify and redeem all things, that you might buy us back from the grave, that you might steal us from the grip of death and sin, so that we might be people of holiness who live a life of love, live a life of goodness and joy, and that we might be yours. God, fill us with your holiness, and let us bring your altar into the world, that people might be transformed by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.